It is such a wonderful privilege to be able to worship our God, not just one time in the day, but twice, and that we have a good Department of Transportation that allows our roads to be clear and allows us to be able to come here safely. What a great day it's been. Nathan did a wonderful job leading us in singing, as Donnie did this morning, and it's just been wonderful for us to be engaged in praise to God. The book of Proverbs is one of five Old Testament books that are known to us as Hebrew poetry. When you read a book of poetry, it's going to read differently than other types of literature. You might, in the early part of the Old Testament, be reading a historical narrative in which there are accounts of stories and peoples. Uh, Nonfiction as they are, it reads different. And then when you read those last 17 books of the Old Testament, they fall within the genre of literary prophecy. But when you begin to break down the books of poetry, the five that we mentioned just now, beginning with Job and ending with the Song of Solomon, each of those are unique. And each one of those reads differently. When you get to the book of Proverbs, that certainly is the case. It may on the surface seem like what you have is a bunch of individual words of wisdom, line by line, that are complete thoughts in and of themselves. You begin to analyze and you see that there are, in Proverbs, like the other books, key words. Words like wise or wisdom and fool and wickedness and the fear of the Lord and on it goes. You begin to see that many of these Proverbs were written by Solomon. And you look in Proverbs chapter 1 through 9 and you see him dispensing these Proverbs about what's wise. And then in that largest section of the book in Proverbs 10 through 22, how one can have a better life or live the life in the fear of the Lord, a godly, a righteous life. And then there are other Proverbs. Uh, Solomon is attributed as the writer of Proverbs 25 through 29. But as we look at the book of Proverbs, it is recognized Widely by a great many people. And some of those proverbs that we find therein are recognized by even those who aren't even believers in the Bible. You begin to think about some of the sayings that we have. They come from the book of Proverbs. The idea of a friend loving at all times. Better is a, a dry morsel with quietness therewith and a house full of sacrifices with strife. Or that it is better to dwell on the housetop than with a contentious woman. (laughs) Proverbs 10 and verse 12 says that righteous... Now, I don't know. You may have to talk with me after services. I don't know who that was. (laughs) Proverbs 10 and verse 12 tells us that, that there's a way that's right in our eyes, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. And on and on. A friend loves at all times. Wine is a mocker. And the proverb that we look at tonight in Proverbs 14 and verse 34 is certainly one such that is recognized in its very saying. That righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. As we begin to look at that particular proverb, we see that there are three inescapable elements that are a part of that proverb. And wherever there is a nation, these same elements, these same principles apply. So what I want us to do very briefly tonight is to look closer at this great proverb inspired of God and that's penned by Solomon in Proverbs 14 and verse 34. The first inescapable element that we find in Proverbs 14 and verse 34, we can identify as a country. 
Now, the way that Solomon expresses it is nation or any people. And he uses those two words, or that word and that phrase, interchangeably. And we can understand that as Solomon was the third king of Israel, and the nation of Israel was intact when he wrote this, that what he would have had primarily in view would have been the nation of Israel. And as we think about that nation of Israel, we see that this very principle was something that God had been addressing with these people, these descendants of Abraham, even before they officially formed as a nation. As we read through the Old Testament, we realize that the people formed while they were in the land of Egypt because of Joseph and the providence of God that led Israel as they would become to, to assemble there in Goshen and grow as a nation. And while they were there, they were in uh, Egypt in bondage until they were released, at which time they were given the law. And then as they had the law, they were prepared to take the land of Canaan. And in fact, they were not because of the unfaithful spies that we've been talking about on Sunday morning. Forty years they wandered. At the end of that time, Joshua replaces Moses and they conquer the land of Canaan. At that time, they become a nation. But before they become a nation, when Moses is leading them in those four books in which we begin to read about Abraham's descendants forming, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, before they become a nation. God is trying to spread this very principle over and over again. For example, in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 33, after the Ten Commandments have been given, Moses says, You shall make no covenant with the people of the land, nor with their gods, They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto you. He's warning them. He's preparing them for when they become a nation. And then you look in the next book, in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 26. And God is preparing them again. If you look beginning in verse 12 of Leviticus chapter 26. And God says, I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their bondsmen. And I have broken the bands from you, and I have caused you to go upright. But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you will not do my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I will also do this unto you. I will even appoint over you terror and wasting disease and fever. And that shall consume your eyes, and you shall have sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, because your enemy shall eat it. Again, he's preparing their heart. He's preparing the nation for their obedience, because the disobedience would cause them to be punished if they turned away from his word. Then you go to the next book, the book of Numbers. And you look toward the end of that book. In Numbers chapter 32, beginning at verse 13, there's a chronicling of what's happened. Beginning at verse 13, the Bible says that the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all that generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was consumed. And behold, you have risen in your father's stead an increase of sinful men to augment yet the fierce anger of the Lord toward Israel. For if you turn away from after him, he will yet again leave them in the wilderness and you shall destroy all this people. And then you go to the book of Deuteronomy. Here's the final run-up to entering into the land of Canaan. And as Moses is admonishing the nation in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 1, he says this, 
All the commandments which I command you, you shall observe this day to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers. And so we see throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that God is preparing the nation. And he's saying, if you do what's right, I'm going to bless you. If you do that which is sinful, then I'm going to cause you to fall. And so we have that preparation. By the time we get to Solomon's day, it's interesting to me that even though Solomon had started following other gods and his wives had led him to worship them and to go after them in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4. Here he is sitting upon the throne when he writes to warn the hearts of the nation against their abandoning God. And it's against that backdrop that this particular verse, Proverbs 14 and verse 34, is written. But I want you to notice something there, that while he is certainly addressing Israel in the forefront of his mind, that when he speaks of people, he uses the modifying word, any. And so what we see there is that any time an ethnic people or a people uh, that are bound together form, and they have a government over them, and they live in a certain territory, that this same principle is going to necessarily apply. And so the principle that when nations form, they stand at that particular crossroads of doing right or being disobedient to God, that's what Solomon has in mind right here. He's viewing that nation. And so we think about ourselves. We find ourselves as a nation, like so many nations around us and so many nations before us. And so as we look at this principle, the idea is that a people must conform to God's blueprint for behavior. And if they do not, they learn at what cost they do so. So the Bible tells us, for example, in Psalm chapter 66 and verse 7, it says, He rules forever by His power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against Him. And then in Psalm 135 and verse 10, He says, He struck down the nations. And then we look at places like Isaiah 44 and verse 28. And God is speaking specifically through Isaiah of Cyrus. And it was Cyrus, the king of a heathen nation, that he allowed Jerusalem to be inhabited and the the foundation of the temple to be rebuilt. And the Bible shows us the picture of God taking Cyrus by his right hand and guiding his hand in the affairs of nations as he conquered them and as he dominated them. And the imagery in Isaiah 45 and verse 1 is that when God opened the door for Cyrus, the gates could not be closed. So as we look at Proverbs 14 and verse 34, here's the first inescapable element for this proverb for all peoples in all times. And that is the element of a country. But then the second, I want you to notice with me from Proverbs 14, 34, that that next inescapable element is the element of a choice. If you'll notice here that every nation and every people as a society must choose to follow. God's not going to make us do right. Neither is He going to be the stumbling block that causes us to do what's wrong. And even though societies are comprised of individuals, and each one of us as individuals are going to stand before God, not as nations, but as individual people, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 we realize that there are societal norms and trends. Whatever a nation allows or embraces becomes its societal norms and trends. 
And so here we have Solomon dealing with what societies, what whole nations on the whole choose to do. That doesn't mean that everybody in the nation goes in the same way or believes the same thing as the nation. We can think about several examples of this. For example, think about communism. Communism in the Soviet Union or the USSR. From 1917 to 1989, communism was the philosophy and the government of that nation or that, that group of nations. And as you think about that, it was a, a godless society. And they followed the principles of men that were ultimately destructive, the thoughts of men like Lenin and Stalin and Khrushchev and others. And yet we realize that not everybody during that era of time ascribed to those views. In fact, during that Cold War era, behind the Iron Curtain, gospel preachers like Bob Hare and Otis Gatewood would go. And they would teach the gospel. And while we don't have hard statistics about that, we do realize that at least a small minority of the people believed and obeyed the gospel. And yet, if anybody were to think about the Soviet Union in that period of time, they would think godless communism. And perhaps the same would be true if we thought about modern nations today, like North Korea or China or Venezuela or Cuba. Not every individual believes and follows, but we think of those nations in terms of the whole. Well, we might think of the same when we think of Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan, Middle Eastern nations and North African nations. While there are Christians in all of those places, we think of those as Muslim states. But when we think about our own nation... We realize that not everybody, certainly, hopefully, faithful children of God do not follow the thinking of so many in our nation. But as the rest of the world would look at us, what would they think of us? How would we be characterized? Certainly not everybody in our country follows the hedonistic thoughts of Hollywood or the liberal bent of so many in the judicial branch of our government. That not everybody follows the materialistic greed that can be sometimes thought to be characterized of this nation. Not everybody is pleasure mongers in this nation. And yet, when you look at a nation, you ask, what are its societal trends? What are its norms? What does it accept? We begin to look at our nation and we begin to see some of the things that it has embraced of late. And we realize that in every state of, our, uh, of this nation... That there's legalized uh, forms of things like gambling and abortion and open homosexuality and adultery and fornication and the free distribution of pornography and the like. We come to realize that some of the battles that are being fought now that those who lived just a few years ago would not have even thought would ever be a battle. Whether or not to legalize gay marriage whether or not to legalize the use of recreational marijuana, whether to use fetal stem cells in research. And we think that the debate continues to arise about euthanasia, the so-called mercy killing of those who have already come from the womb. And we realize that while evolution has been taught in school systems for some time, that not even a whisper of creation or intelligent design can legally be uttered. I want you to know I love this nation of ours. And I am an optimist, but it takes Herculean effort for us to ignore the implications of what Solomon is saying here when it comes to a nation. That a nation who makes certain choices must realize 
that those choices come at a cost. And we think about that in this term. That if Israel, who the Bible describes as a nation who was chosen and loved by God. You remember in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 10, where God says, I chose you not because you were the greatest, the strongest, the best, but because I set my love upon you. And that this was the nation through which the world's Savior would come. Acts chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. If they could not make a choice that was without ramifications, as they did, remember? In 2 Kings 17, because of the iniquity of the nation, God led Israel off into Assyrian captivity and they were destroyed. We look at Judah in 2 Chronicles 36, and as the result of their sin, many of them were destroyed in Babylonian captivity. And we realize that choices have weight, even in our nation. Every nation has the ability to choose righteousness or to serve sin. It's wonderful to see times like that in which Joshua was leading the nation. And Joshua could speak not only for the nation, but ultimately, or for the family rather, but ultimately for his nation in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. And God blessed them because of their right decision. And our nation, at least to a greater degree, once uh, feared and honored the God and Christ of the Bible. And the decisions that were made and the stands that were taken were recognized. And we had a, a, a reputation in the world community. And so we understand that America made choices then and we are making choices today. And the same is not only true of us, but of every nation in the world. Every nation is playing out this same set of principles as a nation that is making the choice either to honor God or to bring shame upon themselves through sin. This is a principle that is established in Scripture. So we see a country and we see a choice. And obviously we've already implied it. The third element that's indispensable in this proverb is that there is a consequence. Every choice that is made has a consequence. And the consequence depends on the choice. And Solomon lays it out here for us. That righteousness leads to the consequence of exaltation. And sin leads to the consequence of reproach. But I want you to consider with me before we close the lesson that alongside of this consequence, there are some other factors that the Bible reveals for us. And so it is that even though there's a consequence to the choices that we make, there are other factors I want to mention four of them. The first factor that goes along with the consequence of the choice of a nation is this. And that's God's timetable. What is God's timetable in seeing the fruition or the fulfillment of Proverbs 14 and verse 34? Isn't it wonderful to know that God does not react and mete out instantaneous punishment when a nation becomes ungodly? We want to see how forbearing God is. And when we see that God has a timetable in which he expresses his mercy, all we have to do is look at the Amorites. You remember that God is showing Abraham the nation that one day his descendants were going to inhabit. And in Genesis chapter 15, as he shows him that, he tells him something that the Bible reveals for us as to be that which is fulfilled. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13, he says, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved, and they will be in bondage for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. 
You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants shall come back here for the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete. So as we look at this, we understand that when punishment comes for a nation that persists in sin is a matter of God's own reckoning. You know, in, in talking about the final judgment of man, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, Peter speaks of how God is not bound by the calendar as we are. That a thousand years with our Lord is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. So when we think about the consequence both of righteousness and its exaltation and sin and its disgrace, we have to factor in God's timetable. But second, we also have to factor in God's sovereign choice. Sovereignty is something that's very difficult for us. That is that God does not answer to us. That He is above us. That because He knows more than us, He's not subject to our scrutiny or to our criticism because He knows all and sees all. We don't have any basis for understanding how or why God deals with all the nations and all the individuals as He does. We realize that there's almost 200 nations at this earth. And some have more power than others, have more income than others, more resources. But God sees and knows all of that and works according to His sovereignty. That was something that Habakkuk struggled with. Do you remember when the people of God were being punished by the more ungodly Chaldeans? In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 13, Habakkuk is asking, why is this permitted? But he comes to understand by the time he's singing that Shigian oath in Habakkuk chapter 3 that God is not subject to Habakkuk's thoughts and feelings, and nor is he of yours and mine. So God sees all, he is above all, and he makes his decisions and he acts in nations according to his sovereign choice. But as we think about consequences, the third factor is that God has perfect wisdom and justice. As God works in the affairs of the nations, he's going to do what's right. Abraham, in making that observation, was certainly right and guided by God's spirit when he says that the God of all the earth is going to do what is right. We understand that ultimately no nation or individual is going to get away with sin, nor are their good works going to be ignored. And yet we understand that God is going to deal in His perfect wisdom and justice. But finally and thankfully, there's God's mitigating mercy and long-suffering. This was something Jonah didn't understand. When God sent him to Nineveh, And Jonah expected fully that God was going to destroy this ungodly nation. And he preached powerfully the word of God. And as the result of his preaching, the people repented from the greatest to the least. And here was a people destined, doomed for soon impending destruction. And yet God was long-suffering and patient with them. Isn't it amazing to put that on a timeline? And realize that Assyria was going to last another couple of hundred years? Until the time of Nahum, in which their ungodliness was such that their fate was sealed. And Nahum 2 and verse 8 and Nahum 3 and verse 7 tell us about that. And yet God allowed them to live for that length of time and to continue to exist. That hopefully that repentance would continue. How long does a nation get? The book of Daniel shows us a nation that fell in one night. Here we have Nineveh and Assyria that lasted a couple of hundred years. And so as we think about these three elements, here's what we do know. 
We know that as the old preachers and the old folks that would pray, would talk about the free course of the gospel, that we still have the liberty and the ability to get the gospel to those around us in this nation. That it's not outlawed or forbidden for us to be able to share the good news. And isn't it wonderful to know and to think that not only in this nation but around the world, but for for now think about this nation, that all around this day there have been men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, who have assembled. God has people in this nation, warriors who can do His work in spreading the gospel. And certainly we understand, as is often said, that that's going to be the key to how a nation goes from being a reproach to being that which is exalted by God. But of course we understand that if we confine the message, if we keep it to ourselves and we're not sharing it, and if we change the message, that what we're allowing is for sin and reproach to have its free course. And certainly that doesn't work in our favor as we look at passages like Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 34. But again, God has an antidote to the reproach. The Bible reveals what it is. First John 2 and verse 1, who it is. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous, who gave himself not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And it's beautiful for us to understand that it's what the world and what every individual in each nation needs. And it's certainly what each one of us needs. As we look at this principle, who knows? It's certainly possible that God will preserve a nation and in it will be individuals who will perish. It's been that way since the beginning of time. And certainly it's the case that nations may fall and yet there will be citizens in it who are able to stand before God on His right hand in the judgment day. And of course there are those who are going to be saved in nations that are preserved and those that are going to be lost in nations that fall and are subjugated. But what matters most, more than the nation and its fate, is the fate of us as individuals. And so it may be that there's somebody who has not yet been obedient to the gospel. As we do have concern and love for our nation, let us begin at our own front door and make sure that we are preparing ourselves to live with our God eternally. If you've not yet rendered yourself obedient to the gospel by obeying God and responding to His great grace, or if as a child of God you need to repent and come home to our Father, Why not make that decision right now as together we stand and sing this song? Name of